0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Uh, My name is John Fleetham, and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Scott Sands, who's the first author of a recent article entitled Phenotyping Pharyngeal Pathophysiology Using Polysomnography in Patients with Obstructive Sleep Apnea, and David Rapoport, um, who wrote the accompanying editorial, uh, and these were both published in the Blue Journal last month in May. Dr. Scott Sands is an instructor in medicine uh, in the Division of Sleep and Circadian uh, Disorders at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Uh, Dr. Rappapol is a professor of medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. David, if I could start with you, why is it important to phenotype patients with obstructive sleep apnea, and what are the different approaches to phenotyping?
1: The the basic idea, which is well laid out in the beginning of this paper, is that we have these very crude ways of describing sleep apnea. We say that patients are obstructing, we count the number of times of obstruction, and that gives us a rough sense, which has been exploited over the last 20 or 30 years, of the presence of a problem, but doesn't tell us very much about why it's happening. And so it's not useful in predicting the outcome of therapy in uh, understanding sort of the, 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 the causes that we might alter by treatments that are less dramatic than CPAP. Uh, for example, there's a lot of drug therapy uh, being explored. There are uh, modes of modifying the airway and so on that might address one piece of the equation. What this group has done very nicely in a series of paper culminating in the present one is show that there are multiple Factors that contribute to causing apnea and these balance out differently and we call this a phenotype and now recently I guess we're suggesting endotype is a more correct description and that these balance of forces can be modified perhaps more One specific part of it uh, and so identifying in a given patient what the balance is 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 becoming critical
0: Scott the group in Boston have developed a physiologic model with four distinct pharyngeal phenotypes can you explain these four phenotypes to the listener who may be less familiar with your previous reports?
2: Certainly, John. Um, the, uh, the the main causes of sleep apnea that we um, uh, that we've been talking about, which most listeners, um, uh, at least most listeners, will, will be familiar with. This first one is upper airway collapsibility. So conceptually, there's only so much airflow that you can get through a collapsible tube, and the upper airway is no exception here. So you know, one way we traditionally assess the collapsibility during sleep is by looking at the amount of airflow that can be achieved um, that a patient can breathe in under normal resting conditions. So for example, some patients during sleep with a normal attempted breath may be able to get 80% of their resting airflow levels and others with more severe collapsibility um, through a a narrower tube may only be able to achieve about 20% of the resting levels. Um, But the collapsibility, you know, explains know, some percentage of uh, the variance of, of, uh, of whether the presence or absence of sleep apnea or whether it's, what's the severity of sleep apnea, and, and there are three other important things that, uh, that we think uh, drive the rest. The second one, which we're going to talk about a bit more in this paper, is what we call poor dilator muscle compensation. So the idea here is that when the, when the airflow is reduced because of upper airway obstruction, uh, normally patients will start to try and breathe harder. Uh, and, and we call this increasing ventilatory effort or drive. And in most people, uh, this increasing effort or drive will stimulate upper airway muscle reflexes. And so, you know, with the muscles more active, this will help to stiffen the airway, increase the amount of airflow that can that you can get through the upper airway. Hopefully, enough um, to be able to stay asleep. In some people, these reflexes seem to be weak or absent, and therefore this this uh, drives obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, the third cause uh, that we talk about is the this one. There's the least the least evidence for the importance of this, but theoretically, um, um, having a low arousal threshold can contribute to to having obstructive sleep apnea. And what I mean by arousal threshold is um, is the maximum level of ventilatory drive that that can be tolerated during sleep without having to wake up or triggering an arousal from sleep. And since we since we think we need an increase in ventilatory drive to stimulate the upper airway muscles to restore airflow, if we're unable to increase ventilatory drive without arousal, this can also promote sleep apnea. Um, certainly, in slow wave sleep, deep sleep, where the arousal threshold is its, its highest, um, you know, we we don't see very much sleep apnea. And then finally, the fourth cause of sleep apnea is something that uh, we call. Increased loop gain, which is really just a fancy term uh, that reflects um, a sensitivity, a hypersensitive ventilatory drive response um, to a previous reduction in airflow. So, the idea here is that some patients will respond to a small reduction in airflow with a very large subsequent increase in their attempted ventilation or ventilatory drive, and that this is more likely to trigger an arousal from sleep. Not going overshoot, undershoot oscillations in uh, airflow and and, uh, core sleep apnea there. Thank you. That's very
0: clear. Uh, Can you go on and describe your study patients and methodology?
2: Yeah. So, for uh, the study we're discussing today, we we studied uh, 29 sleep apnea patients as part of a single overnight sleep study where we recorded all the usual sleep signals plus, plus at least two additional specialized ones that we're going to talk about here. And uh, so the, the first of this is, is measuring airflow properly. Um, so the idea here: we captured all of the air that comes in and out of the nose and the mouth with a sealed mask, and used a pneumotach. Um, this is not normally done clinically. And then the uh, the other more uh, more complicated uh, signal here was then trying to record a measure of ventilatory drive that's a gold standard. Um, so to do this, we used a catheter that we placed via the nose into the esophagus and has little concentric rings on it um, uh, to allow us to record the electrical activity of the diaphragm um, while we're breathing. And so the idea of this is that uh, it's really as close as we can get to measuring the ventilatory drive output of the brainstem in uh, in people. And so, so we've got a measure then of um, like a... Uh, you know the gold standard measure of how much airflow you're getting and how much airflow you want at any time during sleep. And this is, at least in theory, all the information you need to be able to uh, phenotype sleep apnea. And so we use this as our gold standard and looked at patients just sleeping as, as usual, doing, you know, breathing well or badly, uh, depending on the severity of their condition. Um and we measured um we looked at breaths during sleep and so we measured collapsibility in this in our case we measured it simply by picking out all of the breaths where um ventilatory drive was normal and looking at how much airflow they were getting. So you get again, if you get more airflow, um then you've got a less collapsible airway. Um less airflow is more collapsible and then the upper airway muscle compensation, where well, it's a functional measure of compensation we're looking for here, um, and we, we calculated this by analyzing the spontaneous increase in flow that patients were getting um, that would, in, in a, as they increase their diaphragm activity. So, um, as the stimulus increases to breathe, are they getting more airflow? Um, and if they're getting a lot more airflow, we'd say that's good compensation. And so, with these. With these specialised, if you will, gold standard, somewhat invasive signals in hand, we could then try and validate a new method for making non-invasive um, measurements of the phenotypic traits in a way that uh, would be more clinically accessible.
0: So perhaps, David, I'll ask you, in what way does this methodology improve our current approach to the analysis of polysomnographic uh, data?
1: Well, I I think that that, um, it's important to put this in the context of the whole sequence of work that has happened. This is the last, uh, most recent uh, paper, which completes the ability to detect the four parameters that Scott uh, described just now. And um, so what it does is it allows uh, uh, a relatively easy way to extract this information from a standard sleep study. And there are two steps to that. The first was that the original method that was proposed, which is still considered the gold standard for measuring these uh, traits, required that you put CPAP on and that you change the CPAP pressure in a variety of maneuvers that brought out the phenomena that you wanted to measure. They have since morphed that technique to being able to look at the spontaneous breathing pattern, which is the subject of this paper, and extract the parameters Uh, And bit by bit, they've been chipping away at getting that uh, piece of information from a standard sleep study. And then finally, uh, they modified the method that they were using to measure ventilation, which, as Scott pointed out, was a very accurate uh, pneumotachographically-based measure of the ventilation. And they went to showing that they were able to get similar uh, modeling and, and, and information from the standard nasal cannula technique which is now widely used in a large number of clinical studies, including some of the very important epidemiologic databases we refer to. So what I think this paper uh, completes the, the, the sequence is that you can now get the four parameters in a standard sleep study done in a standard manner, provided you have some quality controls and a, and a good study. And they are indicating that the the, the technique for doing so is a uh, basically a Uh, a simple form of calculation, which is readily available, um, uh, which they they could generalize to applying to large numbers of sleep studies that are in the literature or or rather in the databases uh, out there. And therefore, we could retroactively look at, you know, large databases and, and clinical outcomes, we could look at uh, epidemiology, uh, and so on and so forth. So this really is a big step forward in applying what is a conceptually very attractive model
2: to actual clinical data.
0: Now, Scott, can you just outline uh, uh, and summarize your study findings?
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, I think David described that quite nicely. Um, you know, we, we we went from that gold standard for spontaneous breathing then to, you um, Attempting to model or estimate ventilatory drive, and uh, and then um, so that that we only needed then the flow a flow signal of some kind, um, and, and showed proof of principle that with a flow signal only we can estimate ventilatory driving and get the phenotype data and and the uh, specific results that we're talking about was um, yeah, there were there were those three main findings so first our non-invasive estimates of collapsibility and compensation. Um, Uh, both correlated reasonably well with uh, the gold standard measures based on the diaphragm signal. So so we're throwing out our gold standard measure of ventilatory drive and we're still able to get um, pretty similar results. Uh, The next thing was we also wanted to make sure that our measures also correlated reasonably well with, the, um, I guess, a a more traditional gold standard, as David mentioned, uh, with specialized CPAP manipulation and and our results also correlated well there too. And then we went on... um, uh, to you know, in some patients, um, as part of this, there was a bit of overlap in subjects. Some patients um, went, and we also recorded nasal pressure at the same time as as pneumotach flow. Um, it's actually quite remarkable how how well those uh, those signals line up, um, and we're able to get almost identical data out of the nasal pressure signals as we were from the uh, full face mask. Getting all of the airflow, um, which was um, just quite fortunate. Um, yeah, I think that's. You know, the three main things that we were able to achieve there, John. So,
0: how how reproducible are these findings in the same patient?
2: Look, we're still we're still in the process of, of formally assessing this. I think um, you know night to night variability. We've um, we've actually had a few patients come through in our. Uh, uh, our research studies that have done multiple studies. So we're just putting this together. And in fact, uh, one, one individual that we'd studied seven times in the last uh, three years or so. So the data's here to assess this. Um, in, uh, but we don't have the results at, at present. But what we did in this paper was um, instead we tried to estimate uh, the uncertainty or 95% confidence of each measure rather than reproducibility. And we this was roughly 4%. Uh, for collapsibility and six percent for compensation um, which we felt was uh, relatively small and gave us confidence that uh, that these numbers were similar with individual and certainly you can you, know, you can see that just looking at the raw data um, you know you can take a a screenshot of the signals on one, uh, one part of the night and look at it again at another part of the night, providing that we're still in non-REM and still in the same position. And, uh, and you can almost recognize an individual from those. So you know, we still have some work to do to show that that's, uh, that's the case um, systematically, but, but we're, we, we're confident that that will look quite uh, favorable.
0: Now, are you confident that nasal pressure is an appropriate clinical surrogate for ventilation?
2: Look, I think, uh, John, when, it's, when nasal pressure is recorded well, and treated well and, and and you're trying to get more data out of it you know you can get a very nice um ventilation signal but but there's there's some caveats to that so if the patient switches to mouth breathing um and you know the mouth is wide open and and there's very little um signal at the nose that's going to be a problem um we haven't come across much of that but you know there's there's also ways that you may be able to um, to handle that, if um, if you're looking at trying to collect data prospectively, you can put on a, a chin strap, things like that. Um, that being said, though, we we have um, been collaborating with our epidemiology colleagues, and and you know, the, in that case, that we're just taking data that's already uh, been collected, and and we haven't had very much trouble getting um, getting nice signals and nice results um, out of that data. So, um, which which gives me confidence, nasal pressure is doing the right thing. Um, the other thing is, of course, if the nasal can- cannula is, is not in the nose, uh, that it's slipping out, then you're going to have a little bit of trouble getting a, getting a signal. And then there's also the other, uh, you know, sort of more technical aspects of um, how to treat a nasal pressure signal well, not over filtering it. You know, not not smoothing it out so it's a, a perfectly smooth sinusoidal fluctuation, and not trying to remove baseline drift too much, things like that. But um, at the end of the day, I think uh, there are a lot of clinical labs that have um, they're not doing anything special and still have very nice signals that uh, that we can we can certainly estimate the traits from.
1: If I could just jump in there, um, I, I would just add that that there's a, a literature um, both from our our lab, but but also from others about what the nasal cannula signal actually is. And if you look at it, it's really just a cheap and dirty pneumatachograph. So it's not all that surprising that it ends up being a pretty good measure of flow. All you're doing is measuring a delta pressure across the resistance created by the nose that is open and partially blocked by the, uh, by the catheter itself. And so you get a pressure drop from inside to atmospheric, and that pressure is proportional to flow. So, so it's, it's not all that surprising that it's good. There are some adjustment, and as, uh, as Scott said, there are clearly things you can do to make it less good than it can be um, if you process it incorrectly, but basically it works well. The one other caveat he didn't mention is that it's hard to calibrate because you can't get an absolute value of flow from this signal what you can do is look at relative changes over short periods of time, and this is one of the things that that uh, Scott's algorithm does. It, it looks at an average of ventilation in the recent past, in the sort of unaltered state, and then in the present state, and it, it calculates, if you will, changes in flow, which which is really all they need for their for their system uh, to calculate the parameters for the most part.
2: Yeah, we were certainly. Um, uh, certainly surprised to some extent when we started doing this work that we could um take the average of a patient's ventilation um say in the last five or six minutes and and see and almost see the same level of ventilation that they would get if you put patients on cpap and fully open the airway and had stable breathing now i expected patients to be you no know, you're, you're obstructing the airway your average co2 you would expect to be higher um so you would imagine the, the ventilation would be lower, but it, it didn't seem to be all that much. Um, and so um, certainly on average, in an, in an average individual, there there's not a lot of difference between the, the mean ventilation that patients are getting during cyclic breathing and their actual heupnaic or normal resting level. Now, Of course, that might fall apart in some individuals that are really obstructed and just tolerating a very low airflow. So we have to keep that in mind and, and we, we are as part of our future developments, trying to work on ways to detect that. So, for example, if your oxygen levels are very low from the finger, that would indicate that um, your average uh, ventilation is probably reduced.
0: Now, Scott, it's my understanding that majority of your measurements were made in supine stage 2 sleep. Do you know whether they change in different sleep stages and different body positions?
2: Yeah, there's, um, at least in the, um, the gold standard <coughs> literature, there are um, there's plenty of evidence that that uh, sleep state affects um, collapsibility and um, certainly um, muscle responsiveness is supposed to be reduced in REM. So when we I mean we've been recently looking at this um, in some of the larger data sets we've got hands on um, and so for example uh, we recently looked at sleep state effects. Um, on our collapsibility measure and so and it it was tracking as you as you would expect so it was um, the collapsibility appeared worse um, in lighter sleep improved um, to a small amount in deeper sleep and uh, and was uh, worse in REM just as just as we would expect and we also could see a improvement with a switch from supine to lateral positioning so that that gave us some confidence that was working uh, quite nicely. Um, The muscle compensation trait uh, that the we're still looking into this. So the changes in that muscle compensation seem to be limited mostly to an improvement in deep sleep, um, but we weren't uh, as yet able to detect a, a worsening of the compensation measure in REM. Rather, we were just seeing the dropout in the collapsibility. So there may be some differences between uh, how our traits behave versus the gold standards with sleep state changes.
1: I, I think it's important to realize that um, these traits uh, or this analysis into traits has to change if the severity of the phenomenon uh, of obstructive apnea changes, and we all know that people roll on their back and it gets much worse, so something has to change. What's interesting about it is to be able to focus, as Scott was just doing, on a specific trait. And say this is the one that changes in this circumstance, such as going from supine to uh, lateral, or going from stage two to REM. Uh, and that's that's where I think the um, the validation of this will will continue to evolve as as we see the things that we know and hopefully discover some new. So, things David, that this we don't is a know. pretty
0: sophisticated analysis. Uh, do you think it should be restricted to research laboratories, or, or do you think it's ready for prime time uh, to be performed more widely?
1: Well, I, I think that's, that's a, a question which has two components. The, from a theoretical point of view, I think that there has now been enough accumulated evidence that this is telling us something useful, that the numbers will be of interest to the general clinician. The, the analysis itself requires a certain number of mechanical steps to be performed, and these are not quite yet generally available, although in concept they are. The uh, mathematics of taking the sleep study and putting it through the analysis algorithm is not particularly difficult, but obviously this has to be made into a uh, user-friendly platform, which, which would then be used. And so for that reason, I think that as of literally today, it probably is intended primarily for research. Furthermore, we probably need to get a better sense of the very questions you've been asking about reproducibility and about whether it does what it's what we think is supposed to happen uh, when we analyze things where we already believe we know the answer. Um, all those things are looking pretty good. And, and I, would, I would say that if tomorrow there was an easy way to get the mathematical analysis readily distributed, yes, I think, I think it is time to be looking at it. I would be cautious about interpreting it until we validate the specific questions that will be asked. But um, like any laboratory test, it grows by being used, and I believe this has gotten to the point where it's, it's definitely ready to be examined in the clinical uh, arena.
0: Scott, do you have any data which confirm that these pharyngeal phenotypes you describe actually predict response to different treatments?
2: Uh, yes, John. Yeah, we were, so far we, um, we have some data on three different treatments. We here at Boston were looking at supplemental oxygen, which can... Um, improve the chemoreflex or loop gain component of sleep apnea and and um, it doesn't have much effect if any uh that's noticeable on collapsibility and, and muscle compensation and we've we found so far that the combination of a less severely collapsible airway um, with um, a higher loop gain but also in the presence of, of good muscle compensation all those three things together um, quite nicely predicted responses to supplemental oxygen. And, then, and those pa- patients sort of felt a benefit and also looked like they had a lower blood pressure in the morning as well. So if that, um, you know, we still have to validate that going forward because we developed the model um, to predict responses on that same data. Um, but that's that's certainly looking promising. And then uh, we have some data on two other treatments. So um, with our colleagues in Melbourne, Simon Juice and Brad Edwards, um, they published a, a study in sleep using the loop gain trait uh, to predict surgical uh, responses, for responses to pharyngeal surgery, UPPP um, was dominant in that group. And, and there they showed that, the, that a lower loop gain trait, so the opposite of what you'd expect supplemental oxygen to work for, a lower loop gain trait um, was predicting a favorable response to surgery. Um, but then we, we've recently you know, added in the collapsibility and compensation traits and have been able to improve on that prediction again, in a small data set that needs to be reproduced. So there we saw that if the upper airway was less uh, severely collapsible um, as well as having a low loop gain, in essence, the easier patients to treat all around um, uh, were more likely to respond to pharyngeal surgery. And then the the last thing is um, we've been very interested in uh, predicting responders to oral appliances. Um, It's uh, it's certainly becoming... um, uh, a, a raise a, an increasingly used therapy, especially in rescue um, cases when patients aren't using their CPAP, um, but hopefully we can push that forward in order to be able to predict responders even earlier than that to give patients choices ahead of time. but uh, so we're, we're collaborating with uh, um, Peter Sistuli's team in Sydney. Um, they've run a bunch of clinical trials and so they had some some data we could look at retrospectively there too and and things are looking quite promising in terms of predicting responders to oral appliances um, also so again with the things that you would expect uh, like low loop gain is helping to predict an oral appliance response um but it was more uh, a slightly more complex combination of having a low loop gain and actually a, a non-severe but also non-mild collapsibility um, and a poor compensation so it, you know we can take the traits put them together in a in a model um and and come up with a, a predictor of outcomes but again that has to be uh tested again uh, prospectively so you know we we really do need uh um you know a, a lot more data retesting models in unseen patients predicting long-term outcomes um so there's, there's plenty more work for us to do
0: and actually, if the listener's interested, we did a, a, a podcast on the oral appliance with Brad Edwards uh, about nine months ago. So that's uh, that's available as well. David, as you well know, uh, at the moment, the, the gold standard for the diagnosis of sleep apnea is detailed polysomnography with the primary outcome of apnea hypopnea index. Uh, the field is currently going in two different directions. Uh, there's a big push in terms of doing home studies with fewer variables so we can diagnose more patients. And then there's more detailed analysis, uh, such as we described in this discussion, uh, to describe the assess the different pharyngeal ty- phenotypes. How do you see this field evolving in the future?
1: Well, I think you've you've put your finger on on a on a both a, a an interesting comment, but also a, a, an opportunity which is potentially slipping by. Clearly, in order to validate any new technique, we would like to get more intensive. Uh, Data to compare it to, and so the, uh, the sleep laboratory assessment, the polysomnography done with many channels, including, of course, sleep state and, uh, and and additional parameters that are not often done in the home, is clearly what we'd like to have to validate the, uh, the the approaches such as this one, which are trying to extract maximal information from a very small number of signals. So, so what's To me very appealing about the approach that Scott is describing and his group is that they're taking essentially just the flow signal and extracting from it so much more than just whether there are pauses, the apnea hypopnea index, which we we score. Now at present, they are still restricting it to specific stage of sleep. Um, They're showing some changes with change of sleep. And so obviously if you didn't have sleep state, you'd be losing something. Uh, but, but, again, I think that, that we're evolving in a direction where that's going to be what the majority of sleep studies are. There are going to be very simple tests done often in the home, maybe exclusively in the home, with a limited number of signals. And there's really nothing about their approach that is not applicable to that. Um, what is going to be sort of a, a race against time is to make sure that we have large data sets to validate it um, uh, as being important if there are aspects other than the flow signal that are necessary. So as you said, the field is going in these two directions, simplifying what we collect for the purposes of clinical diagnosis, and at the same time, extracting the maximum information from the signals we do collect. And frankly, I think that the approaches that are, are described in, in, this, uh, in this paper are combining those two things, because they really are focusing on very specific signals, which are going to probably remain accessible in the majority of sleep studies. Um, and they're just trying to get more out of it. That, that I think many people have made the point that we collect this so-called gold standard polysomnography in the laboratory with up to 18 channels uh, with uh, lots of time and, and high sampling rates and so on. And then throw everything out and give just the apnea hypopnea index, which, which really makes no sense. And uh, as, as my editorial was titled, I think it, it's really time to go beyond the standard way of looking at things. And, and we now have some of the tools, thanks to this approach and, and some parallel approaches, which are trying to extract more information from what we have. And, and it's time to go really on beyond zebra.
0: So thank you both. I'd like to thank Dr. Sands and Dr. Rappaport for doing this. Uh, to the listener to read the article discussed in this podcast. Please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, You can also subscribe uh, to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Uh, Thank you for listening and have a great day.